I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. This is Money in Politics. We've talked a lot about different kinds of fundraising on this podcast. We've talked about political technology, but we've never before discussed fundraising for political technology. That's part of what I'll be asking my guest about today. His name is Jeremy Smith, and he is the founder and CEO of Civitech, a technology company that builds tools for campaigns and activists, among others. I'm excited to chat with him about some of his goals, including making voter registration easier and building dashboarding tools that better integrate all the many softwares campaigns have come to rely on so they can better extract from them only the most important metrics that they can use to improve their performance. But I also want Jeremy to help give us some better insight into a process we don't often hear much about, and that is how these political technology companies go about fundraising for themselves, how they raise the investment dollars that they need to get off the ground and to grow to serve the political market. First, a quick message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. So I'm here now with Jeremy Smith. Thanks so much for joining me, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. I'm glad to be here. Can you start by just sharing a little bit about yourself and your background, how you got into politics? Yeah, so I definitely took, I think, an unconventional route into politics. I started off uh, in the Army. I served 12 years in the Army, of which five of those were active duty, and before that, four years at the Academy. And while I was in the military, I went into special operations doing counterterrorism overseas and worked a lot with National Security Council folks, the State Department, the FBI's overseas teams, foreign governments, and kind of got a feel for higher level policy and wanted to come do that work. So in 2016, I left the Army, left, I, you know, came back from deployment and went immediately to join the Clinton campaign's national security team was my hope at the time. And they sent me down to uh, Florida to help out as just a kind of three month long, all day, all the time, super volunteer. And I mostly just wanted to learn and be helpful and really learned a lot by watching a lot of other people do different types of organizing work, political work, and especially voter protection and voter registration work. So I really dove in deep on voter registration, voter protection in the on the Clinton team, and then with the Ossoff campaign in Georgia in 2017 and Doug Jones, and then back came home to Texas to um, really try to help deal with some significant and difficult laws on voter registration in particular here. And uh, that got me deeply involved in politics. And I really got involved at smaller campaigns at that point through uh, Joseph Kopser, who was running for Congress here in Austin, who was another West Point Army um, veteran um, running for Congress on the Democratic ticket. And so definitely it wasn't intended. I didn't necessarily want to do it or think about it or anything else. And I, but I'm glad I did. And I have gotten pretty deeply involved at this point. Well, it's, it's as you said, kind of an unusual or unconventional path to it, but a very cool one, to be sure. Uh, And I'm certainly glad that it took you to the work that you're doing today. And let's actually spend a couple minutes starting with the work that you're doing today. So you are the founder and CEO of Civitech. Uh, Why don't you tell people what Civitech is, what it does? Because in that story, you just told the piece, the next piece of that also is that you're pretty deeply involved in political technology, right? So why don't you tell people what Civitech is? 
Yeah, that's right. So we, I was originally doing more of the organizing work, but really looking at the problem of infrastructure. How do you make a good volunteer experience that can scale to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and solve challenges that are affecting hundreds of thousands of ballots or millions of people's eligibility. And it seemed pretty clear to me that we needed to like buy tools that could help us keep track. Advanced campaigns I found used spreadsheets. And I thought, well, we should, you know, use Asana or Jira or Airtable or Salesforce or some more advanced tools that could fulfill the the flexibility and the needs that we had beyond what either Van or NGP were specialized for at the time. And so I I did more than 75 demos with different tools, I think, including call time to AI, which is how I met <laughs> all of y'all for several candidates to make recommendations about here's like a good idea and a good series of tools that are cheap and effective and they're good infrastructure. And as part of that, I started to see kind of a big view of there are so many point solutions and we have lots of good tools for a campaign already out there. It is very hard for those tools to be able to coordinate with one another. And it is very hard for the data to move between tools because the infrastructure is not there. The party doesn't fulfill that role. They have a different role. And the existing technology providers, you know, like Van, did not necessarily open their marketplace to others or create, you know, it's not built in a modern tech stack. It's, you know, kind of a, um, it was a strong tool that was created and is not necessarily designed for what I was looking to do, which was combine lots of new modern tools with APIs and webhooks. So Civitech was an attempt to create a campaign dashboard, an executive dashboard that has all of the stats, metrics, and key performance indicators you would want to measure as part of a team in any kind of like business domain or nonprofit or government aspect, you, you'd want to know what you're, what's going on, how it's, how your programs are working, and if you're having the effect you desire. But I found that that was actually very difficult with most tools because there wasn't access from the party to connect the raw data back. So Civitech is an attempt to create technology for the civic sphere um, and to build or buy, like buy and bulk license existing solved tech and bring it to campaigns at a really affordable price. Because I think it's also a problem of access if you have tools that cost tens of thousands of dollars to candidates rather than in the $50 to $100 range that they often need. But that's a bad business model for most people. And so we're really trying to bridge that to create a path to allowing all of the different tools in our ecosystem to be more affordable to more people. Yeah, it's really a remarkable space that I think for those, uh, it's not, I don't think it's very well understood. Certainly people who uh, operate outside of politics are always stunned when they learn about the way the political industry works because it isn't very typical. And then I think a lot of people who have only ever worked in politics don't realize how atypical it is <laughs> because that's the world that they know. And everything you're saying is certainly resonating with me, both as someone who's worked on campaigns and on political technology, that there's you've got this problem where you don't have a lot of infrastructure because there aren't a lot of entities that persist election to election, or at least I should say the vast majority of the entities are very, very temporary. They are coming, you know, they exist for an election and then they disappear. And so there's not, there's not a whole lot of cohesion across all of the tools so that if someone comes up, you know, and wants to take advantage of them, they can all plug into one another. That has certainly changed a lot in the last cycle or so as people like yourself have invested in that. I'm curious, what has been the consequence of that work for the campaigns and organizations that you work with? Have they been able to take advantage of that infrastructure, that ecosystem that you're helping them take advantage of in order to accomplish more, raise more, uh, spend more effectively, sort of what, what's the end result for campaigns? 
Yeah, we're definitely seeing that people are able to raise more money when they actually begin paying attention to it. If they if they measure it in a regular <laughs> way and okay. actually look at a standard metric of time, right? So like simple things like what did you raise in the last day, seven days, 30 days are not it's not that easy to pull that together from your checks and NGP and your money from Act Blue and anything else that you may have coming in in different combinations, uh, especially if you're not sorting it carefully by the different conditions and how you raised it and the types of was it event money? Was it an Act Blue sign up? Was it um, a referral link from other people? So we're definitely seeing people begin to pay attention when they when they realize that they can make smarter decisions by you know, shedding a lot of work that's going into something that's not raising them any money versus, oh, these are actually more effective techniques. And similarly, we're trying to do it on the field side. So really to show candidates that they need to invest in helping people through the entire process of voting and that voting is not as simple as showing up on election day and choosing you as the candidate. You actually have to help people navigate voter registration, now vote by mail in a pandemic where they need to be able to vote safely and feel secure. You're dealing with different municipalities and counties and states that have different laws on when you're allowed to vote during early voting. Where are you allowed to vote at a voting center? Do you have to go to a very specific polling place? Do you have to bring a form of ID? Do you, some states you have to bring proof of residency. You can vote same-day registration in some places. North Dakota has no voter registration. So there's all these little varieties. And because people move across state lines fairly frequently in aggregate kind of population stats, people move from Oregon to Texas, say, and they go from the most accessible voting state to the least accessible. And they just don't realize that the laws are different here because they may have grown up with entirely different elections. So by sequencing that entire flow, we've been able to show candidates where they can intervene to have the most impact on their total vote score, on the total number of votes that they get that is net above baseline. Because I think there's a lot of uh, accidental focus on things that actually don't really matter because you would have already gotten those votes. And so there's a lot of sending mail to the strongest Democrats, which is not particularly useful if they're going to vote for any random Democrat who's on the ballot. And that as, as special as you might feel you are as a candidate, it, there are a lot of people who are going to vote what, regardless of whether you're on the ticket. So I think that has been useful is to help people segment their what they need to focus on down to a few manageable things. And we've seen some uptake, but really it is clear that there's too much on the plates of candidates. And that seems like the biggest problem, especially with introducing new data, is now having to sometimes learn a whole new set of systems in the midst of the 30,000 other things they're trying to run on a campaign. Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of making uh, clear which are the data points that are most important, how you can take action, intervene to change those data points and move them in a better direction, benchmarking that against something, like you said, having a baseline so you know you're actually going above and beyond what would have sort of happened in, in your absence. Really, really powerful stuff. And I also think that it's not always the way that campaigns are conditioned to think. Yes, to your point, they have a lot on their plate. And also, they don't have a ton of resources. And so the disposition seems to often more just be about sort of what can I accomplish with the dollars that I have? What do things cost? As opposed to thinking about things in terms of investment and return on investment. And that's a very understandably challenging thing to convince a campaign to think about if they don't have a way of actually measuring and feeling good about the return on the investment because they can see plainly how much it costs them to buy that software or they can see plainly how much it costs them to buy that mailer. But what's less plain and what it sounds like you're helping campaigns see more plainly is 
what is the return? What are the actual data points that make you go, well, we spent $500 on this fundraising endeavor, but it generated $10,000 above and beyond what we would have raised in the absence of that $500 expense. And so it's a, it's a home run. Of course, I would spend that. I would spend my last $500 on that if it could, if it could have that kind of message. So I think, I think that's really, really powerful. Yeah, exactly. And that's really what we're getting at is what to do next is one thing that we're really trying to help people realize that they have options and they have good ones available to them in the existing um, ecosystem and marketplace. And there's infinite work to be done on the campaign, but it comes down to you. There are a lot of measurements of activity, measurements of how hard someone tried, which is understandable. And it's often easier because it's easy to log your own effort, but it's measuring impact and outcomes and effects is always harder and measuring effectiveness and that ROI is incredibly important. So as an example, you know, you hear a lot of campaigns will report door knocks because those are a much bigger number than how many people answered the door and talked to you uh, right, and how right. many of them changed their vote to now vote for you or indicated that they would vote for you, made a plan to vote. And so, you know, simple things like that, we try to make that number bigger and at the top <laughs> and it's harder to find the like, how hard did you try? Um, right. Because you can knock on 10,000 doors and if you never talk to anybody, that's, it's a lot of wasted effort. And so, and it, particularly if you learn about specific neighborhoods, like sending people to gated communities that will never let them in is not an effective use of limited resources, especially constrained time and labor and money. And it also creates a bad experience because campaigns are so dependent on volunteers that what we're trying to show them is introduce measurements like are volunteers having a good experience, like kind of like a customer service satisfaction score. And did they come back? Right. Cause there's a lot of churn on volunteers, but campaigns don't measure that. And it's it, it, in some ways it ends up being exploitative uh, not even on purpose, but just by mistake, I think, because campaigns are trying de- very desperately to get more money, more votes, more volunteers in the door. And so sometimes there is a pressure because there's so little time to demand a lot of people in the moment without a lot of consideration for that person's cumulative value to you over time if you treat them better and give them a better experience and allocate their skills to the tasks that they're actually better suited for. Uh, And I think those are very tough things to do. And those are complex management problems for anybody in any industry. But then politics has this immovable deadline and this compressed schedule and this massive volume of participation that can be hard to sort through. So uh, we're we're trying to do that. And, And the last one is really just about like, who are the people who are actually helping you is an interesting measurement. Like who are the volunteers actually doing the work? Often they're not the same ones who are showing up and attending all the parties. Right? They're, they're actually out there quite a bit. And, uh, and I think it's very cool to try to reward the people who produce the greatest results and to recognize them in this moment, right? John Lewis famously knocked on every door himself in his congressional district when he ran for when he ran for office. And I think there aren't that many candidates who can say that they come close to the same. So yeah, absolutely. I, I hear in it also a lot of analogs actually to the fundraising side in the sense that I, I a little pitch to any finance directors and call time managers listening is that I think the same is true of how they treat their candidates, frankly. <laughs> Speaking of candidates, you know, is obviously the candidate's got to work really, really hard and, and should be held to very high standard of discipline and, and spend a lot of their times on the phones and doing all the things that we need a candidate to, especially because they're relying on so many people around them to do the same. But uh, I hear you talking about sort of churn. You're not going to churn your candidate per se. They're not going to leave you. But I mean, if you have them call a bunch of phone numbers that 
are a bunch of wrong numbers or a bunch of people who were the wrong targets. And so it's a bunch of unpleasant conversations. You're going to wear them out. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to associate fundraising and, and calling and call time with any sort of productivity or pleasantness. It's going to be all just this horrible kind of vegetables they have to exactly. have in order to do the rest of the stuff. And it's, it is true. It, it's that condensed timeline. It's that immovable deadline. It's the high stakes, you know, it's the, all of that that makes people sometimes forget some of those kind of really basic management pieces, really basic human pieces. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. It's treating the candidates experienced is actually, I think, very critical. And and probably there are some finance directors who've had candidates who churned because of the bad experience <laughs> of running right. for that's office. probably true. Um, probably true. And I do think as another analog, like I, you know, I get called by candidates because I, I do donate a much smaller amount, of course. So I'm not sure that it's, it's worth the time investment, but <laughs> there are certain types of candidates who do call me and, and have wisely chosen me based on my background. I might be more likely to support other veterans running or something like that. And I'll, I'll talk to them. And I'll say like, yeah, actually, that is that does interest me. I would be happy to contribute. I'm like walking on the street right now. Can you please email me with the details so I can look it up? Because by the way, you're like my 4,000th call today. I don't remember your name. <laughs> I don't, right. right. And right. I have a call in 10 minutes after this that I have to like jump straight to. And, uh, and then I never get anything. And I, I, I know there's, there's a, you know, if any, if they're listening, there's a woman running for office for Congress somewhere in America who I told I would, I would donate $50 to. <laughs> You're waiting for that email. <laughs> and I am still waiting for that email. I did check. <laughs> it's not in my spam or anything else. So either it got typed in wrong or, uh, or the staff, you know, maybe the staff took the note or the, it was passed and it didn't quite get executed in a timely way or got lost in the shuffle or, you know, maybe the money wasn't worth it to them and they just decided to move on. But it is, it is that is like part of the experience is treating people, the people, donors, staff, candidates, volunteers, voters, not as replaceable widgets, right? But as like autonomous human beings with expertise and desires and goals. And I think the more you can efficiently do that, the better you can run a campaign. And I, I think just it's problematic how many people campaigns have to try to contact is a major limiting factor. I'm now confident that you're going to have just a bunch of congressional campaigns email you and say, oh, it was me. <laughs> it was me. Here's the link. Shifting gears a little bit. I mean, we've been talking about investment, so it's not a total shift in gears, but shifting away from the return on investment the campaign sees and actually to the political tech side. This isn't something I think a lot of people, again, even those deeply involved in politics, know a ton about, which is you're running a political technology company Obviously, you also have to do your own fundraising. You have revenue from your customers, but to get off the ground, like any startup, like any tech company, you're raising money from investors, right? So can you just tell people about that? What does that look like? And what has been your approach and your experience? Just like kind of 101 for those that are totally unaware of what's going on behind the scenes of these political technology companies that they're interacting with. Yeah, for sure. I've In the last like three years, I've had to do like political fundraising, nonprofit fundraising, and now like company, like, you know, investment seeking. And I hate asking for money. Like I, <laughs> I do not like it. I feel very dirty doing it. I feel frustrated <laughs> with the process. It feels awkward. It just natively to me. And I think it comes from like, um, like a place of like growing up, you know, fairly poor. I grew up in like you know, kind of like rural and then exurban and eventually like suburban Texas. And I had like a very happy, good childhood. My parents and family were wonderful. We just, it just wasn't a thing for me to need to 
think about having money to do the same things that other people could do. And I, it never really bothered me, but it, it did make me very reticent and very aware of when other people had money and to, and to made me very uh, reticent to ask for money for anything ever, <laughs> or to go somewhere and to feel trapped in having to now pay for something that was way too expensive that someone else considered normal. So I like, I think that is like ingrained and it causes me a lot of heartburn, <laughs> but I've definitely like learned to deal with it. I will say that there's a lot of like research work that goes into it and thinking about you're trying to like, basically what I'm always trying to do is find a value proposition. I don't want to bully, badger, cajole somebody into giving me their money, right? I think that that's, I don't think anybody wants to do that. There's this desire to find people who are interested in buying that service or that capacity or making an investment in the type of thing you do. And you know that those people are out there and you have to find them and that's tough. And you use a lot of heuristics and algorithms and um, to try to part, piece that together. And then you try to offer them something that fulfills their desires, right? Fulfills their desire for philanthropy, fulfills their desire for political outcomes or policy changes. And really, I try to think about it in terms of it's like taxes or infrastructure, right? Like I would, I am willing to pay money to make sure that our schools are better in the world. I am, and I'm willing to do that both through direct taxes to the government to then hire teachers and pay them more. I think that would be a good idea. I am also willing to like put money into teachers unions, into candidates who promote education and want to invest resources in education. And I, and I think it's like, it requires a broader view that bringing about change requires, it requires resourcing and, there's a degree to which we can all pitch into that into smart structures that can bring about that change. And so I think that I know that as a person who gives money and has learned to give and donate money and to think about those as worthwhile expenditures. And so I try to look for the same sorts of people who would be interested in, in something I'm doing. And then I also think about it from the standpoint of I need to be extremely responsible and clear about what I am doing, why, what it achieves, and make sure that money is spent wisely and that those resources are that they essentially are like, I am a steward of someone else's trust at that point, their money, their trust, their time, and that I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to waste their money. And so I think if you take that to heart, you can build good programs and good systems and make sure that what you're doing is actually worth the ask. I've had people bring me programs that a common one is, uh, I'm sure you, now that you're in the political technology space, people bring you someone who wants to build a rides to the polls app and they, they want to help politics and they, they want to connect with you or someone who wants to do like a microfinance app or something like that for politics. And the first time I heard it, I thought it was a good idea. And then I learned there were about 30 of them already out there. And I was like, this is a bad idea because the proliferation of Uber-like apps actually is a problem because you have all these people waiting for a driver and all these drivers waiting for anybody to sign up on dozens of different apps that don't talk to each other. And what you've done is actually disenfranchise people by mistake. And just by because the world is big and there's lots of other people who had the same good idea. You know, they'll ask me to help them raise money for it. And I'll explain like, this is not a good investment. This isn't worth the time and money. You want to, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars to make this technology. And then you have to market it and disseminate it. You have legal liability problems around who, if something happens in an incident, is the campaign responsible for recommending someone get in that car? Is the campaign responsible for the driver who took somebody and had an issue? If someone gets left at the polls, is that your, you know, there's, there's, there's like liability issues, there's um, safety issues, there's like, it's a logistic 
cool nightmare. And campaigns, like major presidential campaigns, will set up rides to the poll systems because people really want to do it. And volunteers have heard a story from somebody about how great it is to give someone a ride to the polls. But it's generally not a good use of volunteer time for efficiency if you want to win the election. And very few people sign up for it because most of the people who need a ride are either too poor to get connected to care of your system or they have special needs and they need special equipment and vehicles that are that are well equipped to handle that and people who know how to do that. And so the alignment just is not there. And you can support disability groups and bus tickets to people who who can better plan or expand voting to allow, you know, to help people in a way that is much more efficient than setting up a rise to the poll system. And so I will say this is not a good value proposition. Like an investor, I don't think of a, investors, donors, or campaigns should put their money into this. And until the idea gets worked out more. And here's, here are the challenges that you'd have to solve. And I think I, we try to apply that to ourselves. If, if we are coming to someone and we don't have a clear idea of what we're asking for, we just want money. It's a bad idea. Like don't, don't walk into the room because we're breaking faith in that relationship. So I've definitely struggled to learn this, but I, I try to approach it from if someone were to bring me a good idea, or especially now that I am a CEO and I have to buy things, I can, I very much appreciate somebody who brings me a solution that solves a headache that I have. And I'm willing to spend the money on that because I have like a clear understanding of this is, this is the problem I'm having. If this solves that problem, I will buy it. Like it is absolutely worth it. I will usually hunt it down first, but so anyway, so I, I have really try to frame it in terms of that value proposition. I want every single person who does a transaction with us in any form to walk away feeling like they got something out of it that they wanted. Ideally, that they got more out of it than they gave up in money. And if that is true, then I think we're doing a good job. And so that's the ethos that we try to instill in our fundraising. But it is also just like, um, the other thing I would say is, you know, I think Y Combinator says you need 30 coffee meetings to get one investor or something like that. Uh, we've been fortunately a little bit more successful than that, but it is it is true. You have to you have to talk to lots of people, and you have to sit down with many of them. And most of the best advisors, mentors, supporters, future hires that we have found came from a meeting two years ago that we were polite and kept in touch. And six, twelve, eighteen months later, when they saw traction or they had an opportunity or they connected someone in, that really resulted in value. So it's about not seeing people as purely somebody that you just need to get across the finish line and get their money out of them. It's about treating them as a serious person who could always be useful and valuable and supportive in your network. And I think uh, there's a little bit of a slow burn to that. And it is painful when you are trying to raise the money for something that you know is important to you. Uh, but that's a, you have to learn that kind of patience that it's not someone else's problem or fault if they don't give you their money. <laughs> <laughs> I find that those com those conversations too also, you know, if, if thought of correctly, they can be terrific learning experiences right in the moment too. You know, if you're, if you were, you know, we'll use Y Combinator's number of 30, if you're three in and three in a row have asked very similar questions or have identified very similar concerns or skepticism that by the time you hit that fourth one, you know, you should have thought through, you know, there, there's some, there's something, something to be said about that. I, I'm curious what your experience has been about the kinds of people, though, you mentioned several times, and I think very astutely that the question is about value proposition. But how do the kinds of investors that invest in political tech, in your experience, think about the value proposition? Because obviously, 
or I shouldn't say obviously, but intuitively, I think you would presume that they expand what they consider valuable beyond an investment in something that wasn't political, you would assume again, intuitively, that they would say, well, normally, I'm looking just at the bottom line, I'm looking just at how I'm going to get out, get my money out in a year and five years and 10 years, whatever their horizon is. Is it wrong? Is the intuition wrong that the kinds of donors or kinds of investors, excuse me, that you're looking at, maybe have some overlap with actually just also political donors that are just trying to differentiate where they put their dollars, sometimes directly into candidates uh, campaign coffers, and sometimes in the tools that they need to be successful? It's definitely, there's definitely an overlap for sure. And we are definitely looking at people who expand their value, their definition of value beyond pure financial return, because we are also a public benefit company. So we, we actually have a mission that is of equal legal, legal weight to maximizing shareholder value. And that was a deliberate choice. And we tell them upfront, like, this is, this is going to be true. We're going to spend money on registering voters. We're going to spend money on helping people run for office. We're not going to maximize profits because we want to do this. But it is, we know that you care about this kind of outcome as much as you do the financial and we can blend those things together. So in particular, I've, I've noticed that pure tech investors and financial investors, I think the cyclicality of the political market is actually, it makes them very uncomfortable. And I think it is very difficult to raise from them. And it is almost purely relationship driven at that point as to like whether you are trustworthy and they'll just do it for that reason or if. You have some other connection, but I, I think it's generally not an efficient use of time to try and talk with purely financially motivated people because it is unlikely that any of us, I mean, considered extremely unlikely that anyone would ever be a billion dollar enterprise or something like that. It's, this is not a unicorn type place because it is mission driven space. It's more about sustainability than I think it is infinite growth. Then there's the political donors. And I find that a lot of the pure political donors get really confused about the idea of giving to a, not a pack. <laughs> and they want you to use the money immediately on some sort of message crafting or, or things like that. But they're generally more receptive to opening the aperture and realizing that investing in infrastructure through the private company lens is actually a very useful way to help both the hard and the soft side. Whereas you kind of, you're kind of limited and you, you have to give your money to different types of organizations that do the same thing as a PAC or as a nonprofit so they can each independently do the work, but it does result in a lot of unnecessary duplication. And it doesn't really create infrastructure because you can never have everything work together well as a result of that. So I think that there's a wisdom to um, diversifying the portfolio. And I think political donors are already primed to think about other impacts. And then there's the added bonus sometimes, if you can really convey the impact of or the value of the progressive outcome, you can also suggest the additive value of they can make their money back or they at least have the potential. And I think there are people who find that to be a nice bonus. Where we've really succeeded, I think, is in finding people who are kind of in between. They may have given a little bit to politics. They also do lots of uh, you know, investments and or, or have been successful themselves. And we get new money to come into play. They want to see something change. They can tell things aren't great. They don't know what candidates are spending their money on. And they don't feel like they get a good explanation when they do that. And so we've had a lot of success at people who are political, but feel the better outside of the political world. They don't, they might get invited to things, but they rarely are you know, going to lots of physical fundraisers or being called up by bundlers because they just 
they don't have that same that same level of connection. So we've brought, I think, a lot of new people into the fold. And that has been, I think, I think that's additive value. I like to think that if we can bring new money in to build infrastructure, it's additive. And so I try very hard to think about making sure that we're not ever poaching, right? You don't want to say, give to us instead of them. I think that that's a, a bad behavior that is, again, short-term exploitative at the expense of long-term clout and respect and reputation. And so, yeah, there definitely is, there is an overlap. It is tough to find, requires lots of conversations. And I would definitely recommend that people considering this generally stay away from the firms that are purely financially motivated because it's just very, it's tough. um, Groups that have a social impact giving history or social impact ventures, or I would recommend to people to consider the benefit corporation route because the B labs and B corp space is full of donors who think that they're, you know, they have like a social philosophy of investing to try to make more people behave better as business leaders. And this is absolutely up their alley. They're already primed for that. But I think it's really untapped in a lot of ways. And so we look at that in terms of, you know, we don't, you know, I, I have never had a connection to George Soros. I'm still waiting on my check. And I don't know if I'll ever, ever talk to them. Certainly wouldn't mind. But, you know, there's a lot of people probably, and they have a lot of investments and a lot of knowledge of the space they want to give to. And where we don't try to like batter down the doors to get people to introduce us to the most famous name, we really look at where is there like an untapped um, reserve that we can go show the value and bring them in and bring them into the play. That's great. Well, I think it's phenomenal that that you're doing that. It's a really interesting additional avenue for a whole new type of engaged citizen to, to, to throw themselves into. So I think it's great that you provide that. And I think on the other end, it's phenomenal that that's being channeled towards all the infrastructure work that we talked about sort of at the beginning of our conversation. I'm a I am a big believer, and I'm certainly biased, uh, but I'm a big believer that that stuff is just, it's going to be the game-changing tools of the of the next few cycles, is there's been really smart, thoughtful work done to create just the savviest politically, you know, or technologically advanced little tool to make sure that everyone on your block turns out to vote. And, you know, all of these tools, they're very cool. There's a lot of them. There's more than there's ever been. I think the next step is how do you have that backbone? How do you have that 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 kind of canvas upon which they all sit so people so campaigns can make smart decisions about which of those tools they need, which of them they maybe don't need, which of them are accomplishing their goals, which of them are not. So before I let you go, let me just actually let you do a pitch then because I think for anyone who's listening who works in the campaign space, where can they just go to learn more about Civitech and all the work that you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. The main product we're building is called Campaign OS. And that is meant to be really is like a guiding philosophy that this is meant to be an open system that other people can come build uh, into and on top of. So we have this executive dashboard and this series of data structures that have APIs so that other tool makers can come benefit from the data work and the, the groundwork that we've laid. And we've contributed a lot of code to the Parsons library that I think the movement cooperative started, which is wonderful open source integrations between other tools. Um, and anytime we build an integration, we try to throw it in there so that other people can benefit from that. Because I do think that you're exactly right. We have to have a bigger mission focus than a competitive one. And the goal is to change the outcome of policy in America and not not to like, you know, walk away with everyone's money. So I think we we really believe in that kind of leaning in. But so campaignos.io is our website. And we really specialize in 
helping campaigns do direct voter contact and track their results. So right now that's mostly voter registration and vote by mail through remote means. We also have extensive social media integrations that can match, you know, Jeremy on Twitter, my social handle to the voter file record. And basically we think of these as like digital addresses. We're trying to make it possible to reach people where they are in a in the same way that you used to have to go find them door to door. And that has worked particularly well during the pandemic. So that has been it has paid off in a lot of ways. The investments we made in door-to-door field tools, you know, those <laughs> are very so cool. Right you now. will see them in 2022. <laughs> exactly. Um, Stay tuned. <laughs> and, uh, would have been a great story. But um, uh, and then we also have some free tools out there that we make available through nonprofit partners. Um, so we have Map the Vote, which is right now it's a just go to mapthevote.org. There's a bunch of you other URL extensions there, but uh, you can search Map the Vote. And it's a free tool that lets anyone see their their neighbors who are not registered to vote near them. And you can help them by sending postcards or laying some forms on their door. And you can help get people registered to vote. That is a free tool and it will always be free for everyone in the country to lean in. And privacy friendly, we don't reveal any PII. We just show the addresses or the unit numbers or the apartment numbers. And so we we have kind of that guiding ethos and we want to stick with that. But we really are trying to build a place to start your campaign and how to measure your finance, your field, your communications in one way, and then to see all of the marketplace players and other tool makers or free you know, resources that you could use to really make your campaign more robust. And so for other tool makers, we'll be approaching them in 2021 to help them incorporate into that marketplace so that they can more easily do their sales. And we really believe in like highlighting and promoting partnerships as a means of being successful in business and being successful in politics is to build the network. And if the network is stronger, ultimately, that means there are more connections pointing back to your business. And I think that that's a good strategy. It's it's one that it builds trust. And I think the political marketplace, if you plan to build technology and get into this space, or if you plan to run for office, the key is trust. Like people want leaders they can trust. They want tools they can trust. And if you exploit them or if you take advantage of people for your short-term gain, then I think you will always find that that is a losing strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that long-term view is so important across all, frankly, of the pieces of our conversation today. So thank you again so much for joining me today. I think people are going to find this really valuable and interesting. I I know I did. And thanks for all the work that you're doing and, and good luck with the rest of the cycle. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you for having me. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the CallTime AI blog at www.calltime.ai and follow us on Twitter at CallTime AI.